You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Today's scripture comes from Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the wicked. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you, you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Thank you for that reading. Uh, Growing up, I'm not sure that I ever heard that psalm read in my church. Uh, It's a difficult psalm. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit, a little bit more in a minute, a few minutes. Now, for those of you who are sitting in the first three rows, this is high-tech media. This is great. For those of you sitting in the back a little bit further, you're probably going to have to break out your Bibles and use those because the words are going to be really small. Uh, so either way, this, we've got this here. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, and, and to be the very first outside speaker, no pressure at all, right? Yeah, we'll see if that ever happens again. Uh, I don't have the privilege, obviously, of knowing where each one of you may be in your own journey of faith with God. Uh, I feel like I've been trying to follow the Lord for a long time now, ever since I was a little boy. But I find myself still challenged by a very basic question. And that question is, are Jesus and I interested in the same things? Or... Could someone discern what God is passionate about simply by looking at my life, at my interests, and my passions? Well, it's not as if God has hidden what he's passionate about. I mean, we could look throughout Scripture as revealed clearly what matters to God's heart. And we could go through a lot of different passages, but there's one passage that I want us to look at this, uh, this evening as well, that I think really focuses the mission of God down into almost a single statement. And it comes from uh, the book of Luke. It's, it's this, the scene is when Jesus is uh, presented the scrolls. 
He's just about to inaugurate his ministry, right? And so he's handed the scrolls in the middle of the temple. And he opens the scrolls to the book of Isaiah. And if you have the words on the screen, tell me if you can read those. Who, who can read those words? Right? Okay, if you can read these words, I would, I would love it if we could read these words together. You ready? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Now, this was the, the statement that Jesus made to inaugurate his ministry. And it's pretty clear here what matters to God, the mission of God. And I think we could really distill it into four different areas. Uh, the first being redemption, centered on the gospel. Uh, the second being release, restoration, and rescue. These are the four things that Jesus says are the priority of his mission and what God is most passionate about for the entire world. Now, me, on the other hand, what am I passionate about? Well, to tell you the truth, every single day when I wake up, I am totally passionate about me. I love me. I fascinate myself. Like this morning, when I woke up, I didn't have to remind myself to love me. It just sort of happened naturally. Now, my pastor has uh, noticed this, and he said, hey, Andy, um, God is passionate about you, and that's true, but Andy, that's, a, that's just a small slice of what God's passion is for the whole world, and so he's been you know, encouraging me to broaden my heart's passions, to, to enlarge them, right? And on a good day... Uh, I can actually say that I find myself uh, expressing love and compassion to everyone in the world who's in my immediate family. And actually, that's a pretty good day in my home because uh, uh, when that happens, where, where I actually extend more love and compassion to my wife and two kids, uh, they let me know that's a good day because they circle it on the calendar and put a star on that day. And they're like praying that it'll come around again next year. Uh, but in all seriousness, I, as I've grown as a Christian, there have been times where you've, you've experienced a larger sort of spiritual revival, and, and, and I do find myself actually extending love and compassion uh, to all of those in the world who I like, and who like me, and who are like me. And so if you see what I'm saying, all too often I find that the passion of my world becomes this little shriveled ball of me and mine. And at the end of the day, I lay my head on the pillow and think, man, I've lived a pretty insignificant day. And when I see this call of Jesus, this mission of Jesus for redemption and release and restoration and rescue, it's this epic, noble uh, play that's, that's going on before me, and I miss it. And I realize that unless I intentionally align my heart with God's heart, with what matters to God in the morning, I, for the most part, can go through my day and totally miss the blessings of God that he has intended for me without engaging in knowing him, without engaging in with, with what matters most to his heart, the larger thing of what's going on in the world. Well, when I read these words of redemption and restoration, release and rescue, uh, they sound so exciting. 
I want to be part. I, but, but there's a part of me that says, okay, God, if that's really your plan, uh, how's it supposed to happen? I mean, what's your plan for making it happen, God? All these great things. Well, the answer that we find in Scripture is pretty startling because it's clear that we're the plan. I'm the plan. And the truth is, as hard as I've looked, I haven't found another plan. We're God's plan A, and there doesn't seem to be a plan B for making it happen. Jesus tried to drill this into the disciples over and over again. In in, uh, Matthew 5, Jesus was saying, guys, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine among men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, notice, I love what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say, looking at this ragtag group of disciples, he doesn't say, oh, you could be the light of the world. You might be the light of the world, or he doesn't wring his hands and look and go, guys, I sure hope you turn out to be the light of the world, because there's a lot riding on this. No, he just looks at him and says, you're it. And so for 2,000 years, the church has been carrying out this mission of Jesus, of what matters most to God. And so what does this look like in the world? Well, where there are people who are in need of redemption, we get to be the ones to go to them and share the good news that God loves them, that God is good, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. We get to do that. It's a privilege where people are in need of restoration because of uh, some physical ailment or disease. We send doctors and nurses and build clinics for them. Where they are in need of restoration because they they don't have shelter, we build homes. Where if they need food, we provide what we have for them. And you know what? When we do that, they actually experience, in in a very real and tangible way, the goodness of God. And, and also, we get to experience what God is doing in the world in a larger, more grander sense. And it's exciting. But, you know, there's another category of people that Jesus is speaking about in this mission statement. And these aren't the people who are suffering because they don't have access to the gospel or, or medical uh, health care or because they're lacking food or shelter. This category of people that Jesus says are suffering are suffering at the hands of another person through violent exploitation and abuse. These are the victims that Jesus has in mind who are victims of injustice. Injustice. Now, you hear that word injustice, and even as I say it you know, coming out of my mouth, I have to pause for a moment because I hear that word a lot these days. You hear it in the media, and, and it can tend to take on all kinds of different meanings and end up meaning nothing at all. So, uh, for example, I think oftentimes we as Americans think that we are victims of injustice just about all day, every day. You know, I mean, even in my own home, uh, uh, I have two little kids that are... Um, eight-year-old and 11-year-old, they will tell you they are victims of injustice on a, daily, on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. It usually involves some huge like discrepancy of like ice cream or soda or something where my son will what, he, hold up his jar of glass of half-empty soda and say, Dad, this isn't fair. This is totally unjust, man. She got more than me. And you even work for IJM. 
Like, yeah, okay, great. It's a daily occurrence in our, in our, home, in our household. Well, uh, as I look at my own life, I, I think, man, isn't it great, though, as we get older and mature that we grow out of those petty little perspectives of injustice? Yeah, not so much. The other day, a guy showed up in his new truck uh, parked next to my uh, green and rust-colored Volvo 1944 station wagon. And uh, I remember thinking, I remember saying to him, hey, great, good for you. In my heart, I was saying, yeah, good for you. So, these, these, you know, these, the, when I talk about the word injustice, I'm not talking about the kind that we associate with an unequal distribution of stuff, if you know what I mean. Or even what I would consider life's little inconveniences, like being stuck behind a checkout, you know, the, the, the 10 item and under express lane, when the person in front of you has got like 15 items. That's not the injustice we're talking about. When the Bible uses the word injustice, it always involves the abuse of power. That's injustice. And when the Bible talks about injustice, it's the abuse of power of one person who will steal away what God intends for another person. Usually things like their life, their liberty, uh, their, their, their dignity, the fruit of their love or their labor. And the Bible calls it sin. It's the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed. If you remember when he stole a man's wife, he abused his power as king and stole the man's wife. And then he stole that man's life. And it wasn't until the prophet Nathan had to come and confront him on his abuse of his power by committing the sin of injustice. When King Solomon looked out on his kingdom and saw the injustice in his land. This is how he described it. He says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. We heard that read to us beautifully in Psalm 10 earlier. That abuse of power. Uh, In verses 8 and 9, she read, They sit in ambush in the villages. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its cover. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and they drag them off in their net. Now, when I was a kid, if I would have heard that psalm read or read that psalm myself, I would have automatically defaulted. Oh, he's speaking metaphorically of some sin and how sin traps us. No, I've come to the conclusion this is not a metaphorical uh, illustration of sin or the power of brokenness. It is a, they, he actually has in mind literal victims. In 2009, about three years ago, I left my position as a missions pastor and I came to work with IJM. I've known Gary Haugen, our founder, for about 10 years now. And in those short three years, I've come face to face with violent injustice, with evil. And it has shaken me to the core. IJM is, a, a, as Will said, we're a group of Christians, uh, attorneys, investigators, trauma social care workers, a- advocates, and an occasional pastor like myself. And what we do is we, we have four objectives. Our objectives are when we find victims of injustice is to rescue those victims. We want to rescue them. And secondly, we want to make sure that those victims who've been rescued are put into long-term loving aftercare where they will receive the love and attention that they need so that they can be restored. And thirdly, because we're, we're, there are a good number of attorneys, we like to see that the perpetrators are held accountable to the laws of the land. 
So that other would-be perpetrators uh, understand that if you're going to commit these kind of crimes, there's a price that you may have to pay. You better be willing to pay that price. And as a result of doing these three things, what we're really working for is a structural transformation of the justice system to function, to protect the poor who are so vulnerable. And like I said, in those three years, I've come face to face with evil. Consider for a moment the, the, some of the statistics of injustice today. They're overwhelming. 27 million men, women, and children right now live as modern-day slaves. Human trafficking has become the second largest global criminal activity, and it's the fastest growing to the tune of $32 billion a year. Four and a half billion people in the world live outside the protection of the law, like I was saying. Two million children, UNICEF tells us, two million children will be forced into prostitution this year, in 2012. Two million again next year. Now, even when I read statistics like this, uh, they're hard for me to wrap my mind around such such mind-boggling large statistics. They almost feel like they're a distant galaxy somewhere far off in the universe. Until, that is, I meet one of them. I want to introduce you to Kumar. Kumar, at the age of five, living in India, experienced a tragedy when both of his parents died. He went, to mo- he went to live with his uncle. His uncle, a couple of years after moving in uh, with him, uh, needed some money. And so he took a loan from a corrupt local brick kiln operator. And to pay off that loan, he didn't have the money to pay it off. So what he did was he let the brick kiln owner conscript Kumar to work in that brick kiln as a bonded laborer. Okay? Now, the, I don't know what the debt was that he had to pay off, but the cruel trick of bonded labor in India is this, that the longer Kumar works there in that brick kiln, the greater that debt becomes, so much so that he will never be able to leave that brick kiln. And so at the age of seven, Kumar is initiated into this brutal life of a slave, from sunup to sundown, carrying and making bricks, carrying heavy loads, grinding his skin and bones away. Even when he was sick, the the brick kiln owner would come to his hut and kick him until he was drugged into that brick kiln and started work. The age of seven, when all of his kids, his friends were going off to school, Kumar was imprisoned as a modern-day slave. In fact, in Kumar's country, there are estimates between 10 and 15 million children just like Kumar who exist right now, today. Or meet Alina. Alina uh, had a difficult life at home. She was one of 11 siblings. She came from an uh, impoverished island in the Philippines. And, when an, and it never seemed to be enough to go around at the table. Uh, and when an aunt came to her town and, and visited with her, uh, the aunt said, hey, why don't you come live with me? You can work at my home and help take care of our family. And so Alina thought, yeah, this is my ticket out. I'll do that. And so she went back to the other island with her aunt. And when the uncle came home uh, for the weekend, the uncle was a high-ranking uh, Philippine national police officer. And he was, he was stationed at a, another province, and he'd come home for the weekends. The first weekend he came home, he physically abused Alina. And he threatened Alina, if she said anything, that he would kill her. And so each week, the uncle would go off to work, and then each weekend, Alina would, would face a repeating nightmare. Now, 
if I were to put ourselves in, in Alina's shoes, Alina's 11, 12 years old, poor girl r- removed from her family, she doesn't have a voice. She doesn't have an advocate. In fact, the very person who is charged to protect her is the very one who's abusing her. What hope does Alina have of ever being re- released? Or Joy T. Uh, Joy T was a, a beautiful young girl. I met her uh, a few years ago. And if you would have met her, you would have noticed, the first thing you would have noticed was probably the first thing I noticed was just how beautiful her eyes were. And when she smiled, her smile could just light up the room. It wasn't always that way because Joy T, at the age of 14, uh, uh, was promised a good job. Some four women came into her village. And the four women were going around from house to house saying, we have these jobs that are available in the city. And they looked legitimate, like they had little ads. And, and so they said, if you come with us, we'll get you a good job and you can send money back to your family here and help support them. Alina was a little bit reluctant, but she went. And she was one of the ones who these four women gave tea to that had been drugged. And so Joy T uh, fell unconscious. But when she woke up, she found herself in a brothel. And that brothel owner told her, that she now had to work off the $250 fee that it took to buy her by serving clients. Well, Joy T was, said initially, she said, no, I, I'm, I'm just a kid. I, I, you can't do this to me. It's illegal. At least she knew enough to say that. But the brothel owner stuffed her in a room underneath and beat her for three days with pipes, electrical cords, and, and starved her until finally Joy T's resistance gave in and she f- served her very first customer. And it's almost, it's almost, it is inconceivable to think that for seven days a week, week after week, month after month, then Joy T serviced between 20 and 30 clients a day. Almost inconceivable. And so when I hear of these statistics, not statistics, these stories, these real human being stories, it breaks my heart. I've met them. But it also does something else. It makes me really, really angry inside. I don't know what it does to you. But it, sometimes I, I, I ask, you know, I'll turn my, my thoughts heavenward towards the Lord and say, God, how do you feel about what's going on up there? Well, we don't have to wonder. God says what's going on. In fact, in Psalm 10, it said what's going on. If you look back with me to verses 17 and 18, the way the psalmist ends the the chapter is this. He says, you, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals, I love that statement, mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. You see, this is the good news of Scripture, that we have a God who is just and hates injustice. In fact, God wants it to stop. But for me, this has always just raised another question. And that question is, okay, God, I understand that I'm supposed to be this plan for redemption and release and restoration uh, and rescue. But honestly, God, uh, I've got nothing. I, there's, I'm so outgunned, I'm outsmarted, I'm outresourced, I have nothing to offer to, to actually help relieve this problem. There's nothing I can do. In, in fact, I feel bolted to the chair in despair. And yet God still says, no, Andy, you're my plan. You're it. 
I mean, we can read in Micah 6, 8, where, where Micah says, He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 1.17 says this. Uh, it's a great passage to read, but he says, Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And so for those of us who take the Bible seriously, there's little doubt that God has called us to do this work of justice. But like I said, I feel so very powerless to do anything about it. And it's in those moments where in feeling powerless to really make this change happen, I think it's good to remember a story from the Gospels. Remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? where Jesus is preaching and teaching to the, the crowds, and the disciples, they're looking at the crowds, and they, they begin to see, hey, they're getting hungry. And I don't know if you've ever been around 5,000 hungry people. It's probably not a pretty scene. So they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we've got a plan. The people are hungry. We love the teaching, uh, but here's our plan. Why don't you, Jesus, send them back to their homes, right? And they can get themselves fed, and we'll come back tomorrow. We'll do the whole thing all over again. Isn't that great? But what Jesus says, Jesus never missed out on an opportunity to have fun with the disciples, right? He says, oh, no, no, I've got another plan. How about you feed them? Now, what you've got to love about the disciples is that they're just so patient with Jesus, right? To explain to him what he clearly didn't understand about the situation. Because they say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, there's 5,000 hungry people out there, and that would like take a year and a half worth of wages to feed these people. And frankly, uh, gosh, we're kind of out of cash. We don't have that kind of cash right now. So they thought, back to you, Jesus. They thought they were done with it. And what did the disciples do? See, they looked at the magnitude of the problem, and then they looked at their own paltry resources, which were almost nothing, and they thought, well, surely this doesn't have anything to do with me. And I think we are a lot like those disciples sometimes, where we look at the, the massive need of injustices, and, and then we look at our own resources, we think, surely, there's, it's got to be some other way. And yet, what does Jesus do? It was interesting, right? Because Jesus, what he asked the disciples to do was not unclear. He said, feed them. And so at this point, the disciples push forward who? The little boy with the lunch, right? With, what was it, five loaves and two fish that his mom packed for him? And so it's so humorous because this then represents the corporate resources of all of the disciples to meet the massive need, okay? The, the five loaves and two fish, the little boy's lunch. Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, are you kidding me, guys? That's all you got? You expect me to do something with this? No, Jesus doesn't say that. He just says one thing. He says, will you give it to me? And in that very moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and 5,000 people are fed. I got to tell you, today I receive more inspiration and faith as I see the field office workers of IJM offer what little they have to God and see mountains moved on a daily basis mountains. For example, Kumar. Kumar is, not, is no longer held in that brick kiln. We documented the cases of slavery in that brick kiln, and we took the investigative reports to the officials, and with the officials, we went to that brick kiln, and we sat down with the magistrate and began uh, interviewing the slaves and getting their testimony. 
one after another after another. But what we didn't know what was happening outside the brick kiln was the brick kiln owner, who was a man of certain power and influence in that community, had whipped up a mob, an angry mob. And this angry mob began to close in on this brick kiln and began threatening the slaves and taunting them. And the slaves, one by one, began to recant their testimony. And it was suddenly falling apart before our eyes until one little boy stood up and said, I've had enough, Kumar. And he began to tell the story of how he had been working there for three years as a slave. And the magistrate believed him. And in fact, as the magistrate believed him, the other slaves re- regained their courage and they stood up and began to say, no, Kumar is right. And as a result of Kumar's courage, 22 men, women, and children, some who had been in that slave brick kiln for over 50 years, were freed that afternoon. Kumar began as a, to, he'd been missing school, obviously, and he began to make up for lost time. He finished high school, and he actually uh, joined IJM in Bangalore and is now working alongside those people who were there and rescued him from the very beginning. Praise God. Alina. Alina is no longer alone and without any voice. We uh, heard about the IJM attorneys in, in, uh, in the Philippines heard about her case, and we took that case on, and we, we got Alina uh, out of that home and into a safe place, and we started pressing charges against the man, the, the, uh, the police officer. And it took four long years of testimony, a lot of it by Alina, bravely, who bravely testified against her uncle. But after four long years, finally, the verdict from the National Philippine Police said uh, they, they dismissed him for conduct unbecoming a police officer. And Alina, on the other hand, Alina went on to be a star. She finished college. She's pursuing a career in broadcasting. And she runs this uh, a ministry called STAR, S-T-A-R, Standing Together Advocating Rights. And what she does is when we rescue young girls out of situations like what she was in, she goes with those girls and helps to coach them on how they can testify in court. Alina has told me that she does this because she knows where those girls are at. And she wants them to come out of that situation triumphant like her. And likewise, Joy T. Joy T is no longer uh, alone in that brothel. We had sent an investigative uh, IJM investigator into that brothel, posing as a John. And when he met Joy T and documented her story, we came back the next week with the, uh, with the police and with other IJM officials, and we rescued Joy T and seven other girls out of that very brothel. Joy T was put into a loving Christian aftercare center where she received the medical attention, counseling, Uh, just spiritual healing, where she actually got to meet this wonderful God that we claim is so good. And she actually, she, she committed her life to following Jesus. And it was such a radical, powerful transformation for Joy T. Joy T came to us and said, listen, I know where there are more girls being held And so Joy T, we went with Joy T to the police station and together with the police, Joy T led us on another operation back to that area in that brothel and we rescued 11 other girls out of a brothel being led by this little girl, Joy T. 
And as we rescued these 11 girls out of this second brothel, one of the girls' name was Kalindi. Kalindi was an 11-year-old girl, but as she realized that we weren't re-trafficking them, that they were actually headed to safety in the van, she jumped out of the van and said, wait, hold the show. I know where there are more girls, but we've got to go right now. And if we don't, we could lose our opportunity. So together with Joy T and Kalina, we went and rescued uh, 22 other girls. I have a video of it. We can't show, we can't show it here, but the, the video shows them all coming out of this dungeon-like experience who are now 22 girls free who will never experience that kind of abject horror again. And they're free because Kalindi had the courage to stand up, because Joy T had the courage to stand up, because Some folks from IJM just had the courage to offer what they had to God, and God moved mountains. You know, every single day at IJM, it's almost as if we measure the miraculous now. Have you ever wondered why, I mentioned that story of feeding the 5,000. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did it the way he did? I have. I mean, think about this. Jesus is teaching, right? Teaching, and... uh, if the people are hungry, why didn't he just do like the manna trick? When they were in the desert, he just go, manna, fall from heaven and eat up. Now let's get back to the good part, the teaching. Why didn't Jesus do that? Well, honestly, I've come to the conclusion that I think that Jesus wanted to give this one little boy a very cool day. Right? I mean, think about this. He goes home to his mom, who probably packed the lunch. And what does he do? He goes, Mom, guess what I did with my lunch today? I fed 5,000 people. Well, Jesus did, but it was my lunch. Do you think that boy will ever be the same again? Now, think about, uh, uh, conversely, he could have gone behind the tree and eaten his lunch. He would have had a very full stomach, but a very small day. And do you think that boy will ever, ever in his life forget Jesus? Maybe Jesus just loved that boy so much. Jesus didn't need the lunch even. But he loved that boy so much, he said, are you willing to give me your lunch? Watch what I can do with it. And he was never the same again. You know, when Gary Haugen began International Justice Mission 15 years ago, uh, the experts all said it couldn't be done. The idea of rescuing girls from brothels or families from slavery, it's a nice idea, Gary, but it's, but listen, it's impossible. I am so glad that Gary chose to believe that nothing is impossible with God. And then as I said today, we just measure the miraculous. And personally for me, I've experienced God by this, by this act of seeking justice. I've experienced a whole aspect of God that I had no understanding or appreciation of before. God is inviting us to himself, and I believe that there is a path that leads to the center of God's heart, and one of those paths is seeking justice. God's desire is for this church, for you and me, to be a showcase of his character to the world. God is a just God. Now, uh, what does that mean for you and I here this, this afternoon? That's great that you're doing that. How can I begin to get my, my head wrapped around this or my heart you know, enlarged the way you say? Uh, two things, real simple. 
The first one, I think if they're, I don't think I even brought enough of them. I'm sorry. The church I was at this morning took them all from me. Uh, I've got these little prayer cards. The first one is, I just want to invite you to pray. And you can do this, obviously, without, without one of these cards. But if, you'd be, if you would like to have your heart be more in line with what is on God's heart, I want to challenge you to start praying for what God is doing in the world. Honestly, I have not found anything else more effective to align my heart with God's heart than just simply praying. It sounds trite, but it's true. And so this card is a a 27-day prayer challenge. And if you fill this card out, you can tear tear it off and keep this side as a reminder. Or if you're like a husband and wife, you can just fill one out. That'd be great. And then leave this here with me, and I'll send these over to our headquarters, and they will then send you prayer updates every week where you can begin praying for the things that are happening in real time, like an operation that's going to happen, or a verdict that's coming down, or a judge that needs prayer, or a girl who's struggling in aftercare. And I guarantee, as you begin to pray for these issues, you'll be saying to God, these people matter to me. And you'll be aligning your heart with God's heart. That's one way. So pray. I know praying for, asking you to pray for 27 days, I know that's like a big ask, right? Because I don't know if I've prayed for 27 days for anything in my life. But try it. Get with a group of others who will encourage you to do it. Secondly, God has given you a mind. God wants you to understand the issues of injustice. God wants you to delve into Scripture and see what God's Word has to say about it, about what His Word says about you. And uh, to help you with that, I brought some of Gary's books, this book called Just Courage. God's Great Expedition for the Restless Christian. There's a bunch of them out in the back in the lobby. Feel free to just take one. If you want to leave a donation, fine. If you can't, that's fine. They're my gift to you this afternoon. Okay? So uh, one, pray. Number two, learn. And I am so thankful, uh, Will, that you have allowed IJM to be here this, this afternoon because I believe that God has a plan for this church to be a showcase of his, just, his nature of justice and his love of justice. And God has something in store for all of you. And I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure that the leadership will be unfolding that for you all in the months to come. Let me end with just this uh, question. I asked this of a group this, this morning. I said, in a world where there's so much need and hurt and suffering, and you've seen some of it this, this, this afternoon, but in that world, why do you suppose God has given you so much God, why have you given me so much in this world where there's so much pain and suffering? I think I want to answer that by way of uh, my growing up as a child in Southern California. Uh, When we would have guests or family come from like the Midwest to, to Southern California, my favorite place to take them was to the beach. And my favorite beach to take them to was a place called Venice Beach. Anybody ever been to Venice Beach? Oh, Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Okay? When you walk onto Venice Beach, you know you're not in Kansas anymore, right? Because it's, it's, it's a whole different world. And in the very open area, as you walk into Venice Beach, there's this place called Muscle Beach. Okay? There's this great big area that's fenced off. And inside it, there's all these weights. And these weights are just like gigantic things. Okay? And there are these people in there. I think the fence is there to keep all the weaklings like myself out. But inside, there are, there's these specimens of humanity that are just enormous. Have you seen these guys, the bodybuilders? Like, I mean, their necks are gigantic. And they're 
arms are like out to here and their legs, you know, they got to walk like, like this. They're just enormous. And I remember just sitting on that, you know, leaning up on that fence, just gawking at them, just going, look at all that power and strength and might. And, and then one day I, 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 this thought occurred to me. I thought, yeah, but what's it all for? Right? It's all for posing. And maybe, just maybe, the, the one time all of that power and strength is brought to bear is like in the, you know, the crisis in the kitchen where the jam jar is stuck and so he pops open the jam jar. And that's a silly illustration, but honestly, my prayer for all of us here this evening is that God would rescue us from just opening jam jars with what he's given us. That God would rescue us from all things petty, all things small. And that the mission that Jesus initiated 2,000 years ago would become our mission today. It's a mission of redemption, of restoration, of rescue and release. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.